and both of those teachers said, healing from trauma requires a safe space. Healing mm-hmm. from trauma requires someone, <laughs> the practitioner or someone in the room to have dealt with their own trauma so they can be grounded and centered and create a safe energetic space for people to name their trauma. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Communitas podcast. I am so excited today to be joined by Leanne Williams and my colleague, Joy Preston. And we're going to lean into some fun topics today, everything from uh, kind of church history to trauma um, to a number of other things. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And now I'd like to introduce Leanne Williams. And uh, Leanne, we don't know each other, but we live in the general same area. So I'm so glad to uh, to meet you and to hear a little bit about your story. And I'm sure our listeners would love to learn more about you too. So g- give us a, a kind of a brief background on um, your church history and where you are today and why you do what you do today. All right. That's a complicated and a circuitous answer you're about to listen to. Sure. Hope you can hang in there with me. So uh, I was born in 1954. Five, which will a reason I mentioned that will come in in a few minutes. In uh, and grew up mostly in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. My earliest church experiences were in a Swedish Covenant Church, which was a pretty conservative denomination, but not conservative enough for my family. Uh-huh. So in second grade, <laughs> we moved to a church in Berkeley, California, that was part of Independent Fundamental Churches of America. Normally, I say that with a snarl because that uh, that kind of encapsulates where they fit in Christianity. Mm. We were correct and there were two brands of Baptists that might be okay, and everybody else, you know, was clearly misled. Mm. So uh, that really narrow perspective led me to understand or at least join in the perception of holiness as being doctrinal purity. Mm. So if doctrinal purity is how you're going to judge you know, whether you're holy or not, well, certainty also becomes a huge value. So those were the driving values. And yet, in that church, there were precious people. One of the gifts from that community in my childhood was we met three times a week without fail, and there were often testimonies. So I heard the stories of what living your faith out um, looked like for different people and the stories of God's faithfulness in their lives. And those were, were important elements in drawing me toward a relationship with Christ um, that made me want to serve God. As you might suspect, women were not included in leadership in any way, shape, or form. And yet, as a young person, I was given multiple opportunities for service. And I was in junior high teaching a third grade Sunday school class, high school leading the midweight kids and worked at Christian camps. And so service was part of the culture there. Uh, And I, I personally benefited from having all kinds of experiences in service. So when I was ready to graduate from high school after a period of incredible rebellion that we won't talk about. um, (laughs) Well, you were in Berkeley after all. Hey, it was required. Okay, so since you said that, I mentioned 1955 because as I was thinking, anticipating this question, you you know, here's this very narrow world in my faith community Mm. that was in the broader context of I was eight years old when Martin Luther King and, and John F. Kennedy were assassinated. And immediately after that, there was a free free speech movement with, you know, demonstrations and a response by police. So 
riots breaking out in Berkeley and uh, shortly after that, you know, the escalation of the Vietnam War and all the, the demonstrations and trauma that came from all of that. And then the hippie movement in Haight-Ashbury. I was too young to be an actual cis hippie, but my sister was, in fact, a Haight-Ashbury hippie, which we also won't talk about. Those were all um, pretty dark and bleak experiences, mm -hmm. though mm -hmm. when you're young, you're too stupid to know that. Right. <clears throat> so there's trauma there in, in that era of life. Um, and no place to put it, no way, no vocabulary for it within the faith community. Now I'm kind of going off on where my current passion is. But so this larger social context of great upheaval and all kinds of uh, collective trauma and this very personal, very limited expression of faith were these competing elements of my life. But I did love God and wanted to serve God. So the only thing I could do was to go to Bible college and hope to find a man I could marry to become a preacher's wife or a missionary's <laughs> wife. And so, of course, I did that. Um, and I ended up in a Bible college in West Virginia, of all places. Uh, and... <laughs> that was probably the closest to study abroad as a kid who grew up in California could <laughs> sure. get in those days. So there I was in the Appalachian Mountains going to this college. And on the first day of my first theology class, the professor, a grizzly short old guy said, young people, question everything. And I thought, what? Huh. Question everything. Do it here and do it now. And I took that uh, direction seriously and have been questioning ever since. Wow. So uh, when I. That was worth your educational. Oh, cost. it was. That, yeah. It was a pivotal moment in my life. Questions were not tolerated, let alone encouraged in this narrower hmm. way of uh, expressing Christianity. So when I came back home. I clearly no longer fit in that little box. And I found a church that was a bunch of Jesus people, you know, from the, yeah. the hippie Jesus revolution. Now there's a movie about uh, era that had read the Bible and figured out, oh, I guess before we start having babies, maybe we should consider getting married and so it was just a whole bunch of young people that proliferated like rabbits. <laughs> and um, I'd go to a Wednesday night Bible study and there were so many little kids running around. I thought I would lose my mind because I had just gotten a degree in early childhood education. Uh -huh. So I started a ministry at that point, even though it wasn't allowed with women to teach uh, nobody was paying close enough attention. So I gathered a bunch of other young adults and we went through a systematic theology together. And as we studied and learned, we wrote a three-year curriculum for preschoolers. We had 60 three to five-year-olds wow. in wow. the building at one time. They had to rent a house just for the preschool kids to meet in. That was my first amazingly fruitful experience in Christian ministry and it hooked me. Mm. So my, I met my husband there. We were part of three different church plants in California. The last church we were part of, I was named the director of children and family ministry. And a couple months later, my husband's uh, whole business moved from Berkeley, California up to Idaho. So mm. we came with them. And prayed on the way, God, whatever you want to change in us, do it. And God was so relieved that we were finally ready to let some <laughs> change happen, I think, you know. Uh, so we we went to, um, long story, but I lost a baby while, right after we moved up here. Um, a stillborn child. And my nurse invited me to church. And it was a charismatic church. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was not acceptable in my narrow focus at that mm. point. And yet I prayed, God change whatever you want. So what I learned from that community 
was that you could come to a worship experience, to church, expecting to hear personally from God. That was a radical change for me. Uh, in my upbringing, we dug the truth out of the Bible, and you know that was the way you heard from God. And this was a personal, immediate experience of listening to God uh, be your teacher and guide. So that was huge. We went to a bunch of different places and finally ended up in a friend's church. And to us, we thought friends was just a like wishy-washy name for happy church, mm-hmm. not knowing it meant Quaker. Right. <laughs> so um, I eventually came in contact with uh, broader Quaker circles and began to really study that expression of Christianity. And it fits so well with who I had been all my life. They don't hold to a strict theology. There's a very broad spectrum of, you know, Quakerism all the way from evangelical to, um, you know, Christocentric, but with very loose theology to to people that don't even claim a Christian uh, identity. And we are drawn together through values. Mm. And our our common values are, um, let's see if I can say them in order, simplicity, peace, integrity, community, equality, and some add stewardship. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what holds us together. So it's a way of being, not so much a way of doing. Yeah. And I hear that in communitas. Yeah. So... Um, in Idaho, I just uh, had opportunities to serve in different ways. And at a denominational level, Quakers don't have what they would call a denomination, but a yearly meeting. And in, in that different level, I started having some great opportunities for service. And people started naming my gifting to me in ways that my upbringing did not allow. Women aren't pastors women aren't, you know, acknowledged ministers or leaders, and here is being invited into this more open community. And honestly, you wouldn't think that would be a struggle, but it was. Mm-hmm. It was a huge shift in my life. So eventually, I I let God work in me, and people named pastoral gifting, and our, we moved to a meeting in Spokane, a friend's meeting in Spokane, that was a little more faithful to the Quaker ways of being in the world and a little broader theological perspective. And uh, they named the pastoral gifting in me. And one Saturday morning, my husband and I had a habit because our kids were, uh, I have two boys that are 10 years apart. So I had a teenager and a grade school kid and our habit was to just uh, sit and pray together on Saturday mornings. And one morning we just started like, Hey, I wonder whatever happened to so-and-so. And we started, I started just writing down names in my journal and without very much effort at all, had a list of 50 names of people that we had known in the various North Idaho faith communities we'd been part of that were just absent. Hmm. And I started praying for those people and it weighed heavy on my mind and heart that are the faith communities we've been part of would let people go that easily, you know, a rift or something would happen and they'd leave. And it was like, Oh, they were never a good fit. And that, that, that was offensive to me that we would Mm -hmm. let people go. Uh, and not, I mean, surely we let people go if they're called to do something else, but to let them go easily uh, in that same period when we made the transition from one friend's church to another. Friends have a practice that they call a clearness committee, where if you have a huge life or any kind of life decision to make, you call a group of people together to sit with you before God and and just listen and ask good questions. And in our clearness committee, when we were trying to decide, should we change churches, change meetings, one of the men said to me, Leanne, 
this is not a divorce. And I thought, oh, it is exactly a divorce. I've committed my life to this group of people. They're part of me. And now I'm considering walking away. I can't do that easily. So that had been part of the background of why I felt so drawn to this list of people. So I didn't really do anything but pray. And they started showing up in my life. And I started meeting one-on-one. -on -one. A lot of these people were, we'd been, had homeschooled and were involved in the homeschooling community for a decade. And a lot of the people showing up in my life were those students or children in that homeschool that I was friends with their parents. But this is the younger people that are the generation of my children. And they'd been disillusioned and hurt. And, you know, a lot of them felt like, they were taught if you just follow Jesus, nothing's going to bad's going to happen. And then mm -hmm. life happened and they were thrown and didn't know how to process that. And the church didn't feel like a safe place to bring your deep disappointments and wounds and huge struggles. And uh, we just felt compelled to just open a space where I invite people to dinner. So we had Friday night dinners. And that group of people uh, started with one young man and his four kids who'd recently, you know, been divorced and another young woman and her three kids who'd recently been divorced and a lot of, a lot of single parents. And I just made dinner on Friday nights and we found a place to meet and we just listened to each other. Sometimes I brought, you know, a Bible meditation or something and I've, I think I've counted, we're on our eighth or 10th, depending on how you count an iteration of that group of people. There's one wow. group of people, some new people come, those people, that very first group of people left to go back to the churches that had hurt them. And that was exactly wow. what God had called us to do, to wow. build bridges mm. for people to find healing and to reconnect. And we've been doing it for, I don't know, 12 or something, probably more years. But where did it really start? And when does it become official? And now it's a web of a whole bunch of different small groups. We met with Joy mm -hmm. and a bunch of other families pretty consistently. And it looked like, oh, this is going to be church. Mm -hmm. This yeah. is our church. This is it. And then COVID happened. And uh, we haven't reconvened mm. and it feels like a lot of satellite everybody that was involved has their own group of people that they nurture or interact with so yeah. so we call that friends in common and I thought we were done last year and then we had a <laughs> overnight uh, we had a Quaker women's theology conference that a group of women rented a Airbnb and we met together and I had my little written statement about okay we're laying this down right and they all went no no. You know, we don't see each other on a weekly basis, but we're tied together mm. in this deep relational way of being. And the way we experience Christianity or walk with God is is really different. And that's caused us to choose different paths, but we're still connected. So Wow, it's just a what a beautiful testament. Thank you for sharing that that story. Um, so many things come to mind. One is I knew you looked familiar. We probably met at a Grateful Dead concert sometime in the <laughs> No, not me. That my <laughs> husband. Yep. Okay. Um, gosh, you mentioned so many things there. Um, one that kind of stood out to me was this concept of certainty. And the trouble with certainty is it's so darn confusing. Um <laughs> <laughs> So how how did your transition from an environment that really kind of promoted certainty, or maybe we could call it a false sense of certainty, right. and and where are you in that realm now? I mean, you must have experienced some, I guess, yeah. deconstruction and reconstruction of your own, right? Yes, and okay, a bunch of different little vignettes. Uh, when we were still in the in the Bible church, sola scriptura, we need to be certain because we judge our our holiness by doctrinal purity. When we we're still in that frame, 
dear friends of my husband and I, we were both in their wedding, though we weren't dating at the time. Uh, he was a Baptist pastor and pastoring a church in a, a pretty, pretty challenging neighborhood in Richmond, California. And as he was preaching through the book of Acts, he came to an awareness for himself that maybe their gifts on on their teaching on the gifts wasn't correct. And instead of teaching his new understanding and causing church turmoil, he resigned his pastorate. Um, and, and he sent me a book called searching for God in a land of shallow wells that was written by a youth pastor in Coeur d'Alene who converted to Greek orthodoxy. Um, so that's somebody I loved and knew who was saying, oh, everything that I've held tightly to, I'm letting go of. Hmm. So if he did that, I, I, it, it gave me pause. And then this charismatic church that we went to had some really different interpretations of scripture that were completely unfamiliar to me. And so we made an appointment with one of their pastors and sat down for several weeks to listen to him explain their perceptions of how they interpreted Revelation, a bunch of different things. And I came away saying, you know what? I don't agree with that, but there's this firm hermeneutic there. Like he's there's he's not doing anything wrong. He's just coming out with really different answers. And that was a big deal for me. Like, mm. is it possible to be a biblical person with a sound hermeneutic principle and come out with different answers? And once you open your mind to that possibility, they're like freaking everywhere. <laughs> so right. those were so. And then I came under, you know, came under the influence of Quakers. I, mm -hmm. I think that's a true statement. Yeah who don't even consider theology a big deal. Like they have one theologian who really was a Presbyterian turned Quaker. So he, you know, Robert Barclay, who yeah. wrote like in, I don't remember when he wrote his apology. It was Quakers have been around for 370 years and it wasn't very far into it where he wrote his whole theology and they're like, yeah, good enough. You know, one <laughs> theology book that we don't need anything else. So, um, and then I found people who, you know, don't believe in hell and don't believe in demons. Don't, and I'd listen, sit and listen and think, huh. So I learned to love people with whom I disagreed. Right. And now I don't think I even disagree anymore. You know, I just yeah. love people and the variety. I think uh, Brian McLaren's book, Generous Orthodoxy, yeah. was huge influence in my life. Started reading intentionally reading authors with whom I thought I would disagree and finding, oh, well, that's a good point. <laughs> well, hmm, how about that? So I, certainty is no longer, I just think none of us, I do believe there's an absolute truth. I just don't think any of us know what it is. There you you go. know, that's yeah. such arrogance. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm curious to learn a little bit more because I know I know recently that you've done a lot of research and study into trauma. Yes. And I mean, what you're describing, certainly the, the last 10, 15 years of, of having these meetings with folks that um, you used to see and no longer saw and then right. and then hearing their stories. I'm yeah. I'm wondering if that was the connection to your interest in trauma because of trauma they maybe they experienced or trauma you experienced. And then I'd like to go a little bit deeper on that. that concept. Yeah. Um, I think I wouldn't have used the word trauma, you know, until fairly recently mm -hmm. um, wounded, you know, we've been wounded by church. Okay. Yeah. But uh, I had taught in North Idaho, you know, at North Idaho Christian school for 18 years when all of this, ministry and bridges first uh, came alive and I couldn't keep teaching and do ministry. There just wasn't enough time and energy. So I resigned my teaching position 
And through a series, I thought I was going to be a bookkeeper again. And in the end, um, I worked for a chiropractor who who encouraged me to become a massage therapist, which I did. So I went back to school, became a massage therapist to free up time for ministry. What I did not expect was for massage clients to show up with their soul. Hmm. And uh, I'd be working on somebody's spot very early in my massage career, you know, very innocently one day, I was working on a lady's hip and said, well, when did you first feel this pain? And she broke into tears and started sobbing and talked about she had a difficult birth and that that daughter she was estranged from. Hmm. So this physical pain had a life experience connection. So I started here. I had a couple of months where literally Every woman on my table had experienced sexual abuse Mm. of some kind. Mm. So it was through my massage work that I started understanding, oh, my gosh, trauma is a common. I mean, it's not these rare, you know, unusual experiences, but this is part of our human condition. And I felt Mm. completely ill-equipped to meet people at that level. So I went to, I participated in a contemplative, two-year contemplative retreat program with a focus on um, spiritual accompaniment Mm. and the cohort that I was part of. We were all healers of some kind, nurses or, so that was incredibly helpful. So that was a step and talked about trauma somewhat in those contexts. Recently, just in in 2022, um, I did some traveling among Quakers and went to a a Quaker Religious Educators Collaborative. I was their speaker for their annual session and sitting just, this is the first in-person post-COVID meeting of that um, group. And this is a group that had people from Africa, a lot of Quakers in Africa, Africa, Cuba, many places in South America, all over North America, joining via Zoom and in person in North Carolina. And that to listen to their stories, people had experienced communal trauma, you know, mm-hmm. from the pandemic, yes, from the changes, you know, change is can be perceived as trauma or can result in trauma because. Things aren't the way they were, and we mourn that. So I think in the through the pandemic, I personally had long haul COVID. That was kind of a trauma for me. Just mm-hmm. I mean, to watch your body betray you and not have anybody with any answers. So trauma was part of my kind of became more aware because of my massage work and then in community work at a at a larger, broader uh, Quaker kind of interactions, I just keep hearing and seeing um, dysfunctional meetings, local meetings, or what you would call churches, and dysfunctional yearly meetings or denominations because of unhealed relational trauma. Hmm. So that's what calls me to uh, call us to pay attention. Yeah. Mm You had mentioned to me, Leanne, um, recently when we were talking, some of the ideas or ways forward that you think um, we could do as gatherings of people, whether in communities or families or even businesses. Um, will you share some of those? Yeah, I, I, you know, I spent a little bit of time just recently like wondering where has I been all these years that I don't know where trauma informed the the phrase trauma informed it's among educators and healthcare workers. And my sister uh, who lives in Pennsylvania had just started a new yoga class where the instructor who was an ex Marine, heavily tattooed ex Marine introduced him as a himself as a trauma informed yoga instructor. Mm -hmm. And I thought, 
where where did this come from? Has it been here all along? And in fact, uh, it was the Vietnam era um, where people first started looking at trauma. Peter Levine was one of the first trauma researchers in Berkeley, and uh, PTSD was first, a, you know, uh, an official diagnosis in 1980. The Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey was published, I think, in 1997, something close to that. So there's, it's been in this era, and I was just thinking about this this morning, like, what has made us pay attention to it? And I was, I've been thinking, okay, this is, seems like an aside, but it might make sense in the end. <laughs> this morning, I was sitting and thinking about the 20th century that the very first people growing up in the beginning of the century experienced the First World War, the Depression, the Great Depression. Maybe they lived through the Second World War. Our, my parents, so people, the, the generation that's not long on this earth right now, lived through mm-hmm. in their childhoods, the Depression, the Second World War. Uh, people in my era lived through the Cold War, where at school we had these, you know, exercises of hiding under our desk to, pro- you know, to protect ourselves against atomic bombs, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, but it was, I remember the fear of the Cold War era and Vietnam and, you know, and now our kids have have experienced 9-11 and school shootings and mass, you know, um, catastrophic global change, you know, and, and warfare is always, so we have every human being in our country, maybe on the planet Mm -hmm. has Mm -hmm. had communal trauma. And if we're going to be faith communities that attend to the health of the souls of the people, we have to pay attention to trauma. Mm -hmm. This last summer, I went to a a Quaker training called Connection Rupture Repair. And they talked a lot lot about polyvagal theory. Almost that whole training was about acknowledging and learning how to to process trauma. Then I went to a massage training, a Traeger um, technique. And that teacher talked about creating safe space. So both the the repair rupture relationship and the um, the massage training were like two weeks apart. And both of those teachers said healing from trauma requires a safe space. Healing mm-hmm. from trauma requires someone, <laughs> the practitioner or someone in the room to have dealt with their own trauma so they can be grounded and centered and create a safe energetic space for people to name their trauma. So that really has been the catalyst of, mm-hmm. for a lot of reading. I uh, I want to read to you a couple of quotes. I knew this was going to come up. Recently, I went to an online trauma super conference. Gabor Mate said, to find compassion for yourself requires the presence of another who will hold you in compassion. That's our work as the church. Uh, Thomas Hubel, who who wrote a book called Healing Collective Trauma, said the deepest pain in the world is the one that is mute. Listen for the mute pain. That's our job as ministers, as followers of Christ. Listen for the pain. He also said relational trauma requires a relational context to repair it. That's our job as the church. And collective trauma requires collective processing. And that's where we're not so good, you know, as communities to collectively name. Here's our dysfunction. How have we been hurt by that? How can we hold each other not to re-traumatize because we're good at that? but to create a safe space to process our trauma. Hmm. 
beautiful. Wow. I want to go there wherever that's happening. (laughs) Well, and you said, what are some places that we can start? I think we can start by first really helping people understand that when someone behaves poorly, Mm -hmm. there's always more to the story. When there's poorly chosen words or a reaction that seems really blown overblown, there's always a story behind that. And rather than responding to the words or the actions, let's stop and listen for the mute pain. Mm. Um, Carolyn Sargensen is another person that talks about group nervous systems. And she, she talks about when a group is stuck, you just need to stop and listen and wait and not advise and not fix. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's at our best, that's Quaker worship. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. There's, there's so much, at least from my perspective, and I think from a lot of others, the, the last six to 10 years, and we could even narrow it down to a more specific time frame, uh, ha- has been so overwhelming with anger and vitriol and mm-hmm. uh, black and white thinking, and you're either with us or against us, and, mm-hmm. and then and then name calling. I mean, it's just it, it it feels like the world is you know fighting over blocks in kindergarten. Um, <laughs> how do we? Yeah. I, I'm not. A, I'm, I, I, there's no quick fix for that, but a lot of what you're suggesting. Um, would certainly go a long way. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I have many massage clients who, I mean, it seems like everyone assumes you think the way they think. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and if they know that I taught at Christian school, well, then they come assuming there's yeah. a certain set of understandings that we share. Right. So I think part of part of being a safe space in the world is is being honest ourselves, even if that opens us up to misunderstanding or whatever. So with my clients who come in with a very clear political agenda, I've had to come up, learn, teach myself phrases like, huh, that's interesting. I don't share that perspective, which is a way of inviting further conversation that many people will not take, you know, or (laughs) to say, tell me, I don't understand how you come to that conclusion. Can you tell me more? Hmm. Or I'm thinking of one particular young woman client who kind of rails in certain areas and I'll ask her, can you, how, how does that, she reads a lot of conspiracy stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is the fruit of that in your life? How does that serve you? Right. You know, I think when we challenge each other to to think a little differently or to at least be aware that there are people that hold different vantage points, you know, I, I that's helpful. For me, it's helpful when someone says something really offensive to ask myself, what might there be? How does that serve them? What need do they have where they need to hold on to that belief or they need to, you know, Mm -hmm. we're all broken, you know, and we're all victims of trauma or hold traumatic responses. And we need to listen for that pain and just ask God, what do you want me to do about that? How can we hold each other in tenderness instead of judgment? Mm-hmm. Not that of, I do that well all the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're all in process on that one. In, in one of your talks that I listened to, it was fascinating to learn a little bit about generational trauma. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are, there are studies, and you'll know them better than I, um, on this topic. And, and it's fascinating that in our DNA are the traumas of our four bearers, right? Mm-hmm. And, but what makes it even more difficult, though, is we may not even be able to identify 
right. the specific trauma because we didn't endure it and it probably wasn't spoken about in our family contexts. Mm, right. So explain the concept a little bit and maybe some ways toward healing from that perspective. Um, I, I recently have kind of reordered this in my thinking okay. in, a, in a Christian context when the Bible talks about mm. God visiting the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Right. Let's think about trauma. So great grandpa or grandma, you know, is abusive in some way. That's sin. Yeah. And that sin produces trauma in the person who received the abuse. Hmm. If that person was your grandma, she now carries the trauma of abuse in her body. When she's pregnant with your mother, your mother has within her developing body the egg that would someday be you. Mm -hmm. And so genetically, that unresolved trauma is coming to the fourth gen, you know, from the grandparent to the fourth generation. And I, I just wonder when we read scripture, if we could, you know, reframe some of that in, in the light of, of trauma. I, I read a book, uh, now I don't, can't tell you the author, but it was called, it didn't start with you. And it mm -hmm. was about generational trauma. And that a lot of these are visceral responses, physiological responses that we're just what you said, we don't know what happened and we don't even know that that's what's happening. In my own life, my father was a child during the depression, lived, well, my father's mother tortured him physically hmm. and was in a mental institution for much of his childhood. So he was a victim of physical abuse. His father abandoned the family. So there's emotional you know, psychological trauma there. He was raised by his aunt uh, on a farm in Tilden, Illinois. And at 14, or this is the story he told me anyway, he left the farm in the middle of the, uh, the depression to go to Chicago and make his own way. I don't know everything that happened to my father and I don't know what is true or not true but I could journal a story that could have been. Mm -hmm. And I did that. I wrote my father's story with what I thought I knew. And my body doesn't care if what I, if I got the details right or not, mm -hmm. but in moving what could have been <laughs> um, into words, it moves from your viscera into this part of your brain where you can process things mm -hmm. logically. And so when you give language by telling a story, even if you don't know it's true, but if it could have been true, and if it feels true in your body, that creates a pathway for healing because now there's a place to identify and to process uh, what could have been. And for me, my entire life, I'd had dreams about being really hopelessly lost, and it was terrifying. Uh, and when I read that book and thought, where could could this be generational trauma? Well, it could have been my dad as he made his way at 14 over hundreds of miles. He was probably lost and afraid. Is that his fear that I'm holding? Maybe. So I went through this process of journaling what could have been. And um, I haven't had that dream since then. In my son's life, he came to me one day saying, Mom, I keep having this, you know, these memories of being beaten. And I know you didn't beat me, you know, mm -hmm. but it's really, he struggles with bipolar disorder and he was really disturbed by that. And I said, well, let me just float this idea of generational trauma by you. And I explained what I just explained. He said, you know, your dad was, your grandpa was physically abused and your dad was beaten by, could it be and it immediately connected and said, yes, that's it. It's hmm. not my beatings. It's someone else's because neither my father nor my husband have really processed the, those kinds of traumas. So language is powerful and moves visceral, deep experiences into a different part of our brain where then we can think about it without the, the physical 
responses or sometimes, you know, um, EFT or tapping is a, something that's used with victims of PTSD. There's a really great online um, video of EFT being used with Rwandan uh, hmm. kids who watch their parents it, from the genocide watch their parents being killed and if it mm. helps them you know that's and it's free and it's you know easily learned so there are there are tools out there that i think even our churches could offer yeah. to people mm. you know to just give them ways forward and god is faithful and will walk with us if we're willing to name oh here's the thing and we don't know what to do with it but here's some ways forward. Our churches also need to resource themselves with with uh, trained people who can deal with what we're not able to deal with. But there's mm-hmm. some pretty simple tools that are helpful. Good. If listeners are list, are interested, I found the book. It didn't start with you as Mark Wolin, W-O-L-Y-N-N. Good, and we'll put that in the show notes too. That that is extraordinarily helpful. Um, Leanne, this has been wonderful. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface on on so much of this. Um, Communitas as an organization, we um, have worked very hard in our staff care and development side to care for families and people that are sent cross-culturally and recognize the either capital T or or little t trauma that that children can experience um, through Mm -hmm. those those experiences. Um, and and yet, a lot of what you bring up today, I think, is going to be so helpful to so many of us um, to bring some, bring those things to the forward parts of our mind. Um, so you, the powerful word you used frequently was community, you know, having this happen in, in community. And um, I personally know how powerful that can be. And I also know how difficult it can be because yeah. <laughs> uh, you can't force that in community, right? Right. Um, so a- any thoughts on, on, on how you bring, I guess, a level of trust into a community so that those kinds of things can happen? Well, I'd say at least half of the small groups that I facilitate follow uh, Parker Palmer was an educator who started working mostly in that field, but he developed something called a circle of trust Mm -hmm. and Quakers use a similar format called worship sharing, but uh, you can look up circles of trust and his principles online and find them pretty easily, but they're a way of being together as a group that says no, no fixing, no judging, no advising. So when you meet together, you're open, you're, you're meeting before God prayerfully. um, And we create a place that's a lot of silence and a lot of, waiting Hmm. where we're prayerfully coming before God to hold each other. And sometimes we have a talking stick or sometimes, you know, we have a specific time frame so that everybody gets a chance to share if they want to, but we're not afraid of silence. We're not afraid of just sitting and holding each other prayerfully to let the Holy spirit bring to the front what needs to be dealt with. And some people you know, say, I, I won't have anything to say. That's okay. We'll hold you in loving silence and mm. be present for you. And recently I've learned about co-regulation that mm-hmm. our nervous systems actually hold each other in a way that rewires how we, how we think about our trauma just by being in the grounded loving presence of another person and then you add the holy spirit to that it is a powerful healing space when we can just hold each other and we what we don't want to do is ask people to tell tell their stories of trauma if they choose to tell their stories that's fine but i think one of the things that is still happening in the church regularly i have a client who's 
husband was involved in pornography and she they've gone to a a group at a local church that does that work and the men have one group and the wives are supposed to meet and the wives are required to tell their stories hmm. and every time she goes she is re-traumatized yeah she you know so we want to be really careful to not ask people tell us what your trauma is if they offer that we receive it and hold it in a loving embrace but we don't ever demand people speak when they're not ready to and if we can trust that the holy spirit will orchestrate those things it's pretty amazing how quickly trust um, develops when you can hold each other in that space joy and i were part of a, a retreat where a new couple came and immediately felt safe and could mm. share it's pretty mm. pretty precious yeah well that's great and i've i've witnessed and appreciated leanne um as a facilitator you model vulnerability and i feel like that really sets the tone so that people know that they can be honest and worse i was previously so used to needing to have an explanation and an answer and things figured out and to go somewhere where I could just be honest and let down my hair. That was huge. And I really feel like I grew as a result of being in groups where you modeled that way. Well, you might as well admit that you don't know what you're doing because I'll figure it out one way or another, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, Leanne, thank you so much for taking the time yeah. with us today and again i feel like we're just scratching the surface but i i do feel like this is extraordinarily beneficial and uh, i do appreciate uh your experience and even being vulnerable with us on this mm -hmm. podcast so in the show notes we'll we'll put some links to resources many of which mm -hmm. you suggested here and uh, for those of you out there who are more interested in this topic and would like to learn more please do go and see the show notes and uh, we'll also put ways in there to be in contact with Leanne if that's something that you wish to pursue as well. So thanks everybody for being with us for another episode of the Communitas podcast. If you've enjoyed this, we would ask that you would let your friends and family and neighbors know, and uh, please do leave us a rating. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. And we look forward to being with you next time on another episode of the Communitas podcast. Take care.